Welcome to the Crackenfold podcast with John F. White. Storm gods and dragons. Why did they fight each other? Why did good dragons turn bad? And why is the most worshipped god in the world a storm god? But also, why is the most well-known storm god in the world not actually a storm god? And if that sounds interesting, then I hope you've put the kettle on, because it's time to grab a cup of tea. And welcome to Crackenfold. From the Nordic Thor to the Egyptian Set, from the Indic Indra to the Near East Baal, storm gods are thought to have been around as long as humans have had pantheons for their gods. And why do we think this? Well, it's to do with the power of thunder and lightning. Imagine being alone in the woods or in a cave and the sky darkens, then everything lights up. For a second or two, lightning shoots across the sky, followed by a loud clap and a deep, rolling, thunderous roar. Your senses would be heightened. Maybe adrenaline was pumping in your body. Certainly, if you were young or if you hadn't heard it before, you'd be frightened. It would be completely out of your control. And in the worst example, what follows would be torrential rain causing floods, destroying homes, fields, killing people. Such a storm could represent a huge catastrophe. And such events were well outside human comprehension thousands of years ago. And so had to have come from the gods. There was no other explanation for it. And even today you can search scared of thunder on YouTube and you'll see children, adults and animals all still very frightened about thunder and lightning. I'd recommend watching a YouTube video titled This Barn Owl Baby Just Heard Thunder for the First Time just to see the effect thunder has on animals. This is nature at one of its most powerful times. And speaking of adrenaline pumping powerful actions, don't forget to hit the like button if you enjoy watching these videos, as it really helps me out a lot. Thank you. But let's go back to these thunderous events we see where gods were being made responsible for storms. And so the birth of the storm gods then happened. And we have evidence for this belief in historical texts, which is one of the ways we know storm gods have existed in civilizations across the world and do so still in various guises. For example, there is much evidence to suggest that the Abrahamic God himself, the most worshipped God in the world today, Yahweh, was once a storm God. We can come to this conclusion as we see in Psalm 104.3, the line that says, God makes the clouds his chariot, he rides on the wings of the wind, which aligns with words said by other storm gods in the same region, but before the time of Yahweh, including those that would influence stories within the Bible, such as the Babylonian Marduk, who in the Enuma Elish is said to have mounted the storm chariot, irresistible and terrifying. And even Baal, the Canaanite Phoenician storm god, who is called the rider of the clouds. Here we have a consistent example of a storm god motif, which over time has evolved to allow this god to become the head of his own pantheon and who would eventually remove those other gods within his pantheon to create a monotheistic religion. Well, he didn't remove them, but the people who wrote the stories in the Bible did. But more about the many original names of this god and his pantheon another day. For us now, 
The storm gods of these mythologies did not bring rain and flooding to lands due to their anger or kindness. The rain came to the lands after they defeated a dragon or an equivalent type of monster. And we've seen in my previous videos that it was dragons who controlled water with good benevolent dragons placing water onto the lands to let life flourish. And in these myths, we can sometimes see that the dragons themselves are considered the storm gods. But as human cultures evolved, we see these gods evolve. And for those without developed dragon myths, the thunderstorm would have probably been considered originally a soul in an animism sense. That's if it hadn't already been personified into a god in a more traditional sense. And when the dragon myth was mixed into these cultures' pantheons, the dragon's control of water remained, but it would have been seen as retaining the water as opposed to giving it freely. And it would now make sense that the thunder and lightning, this powerful natural phenomena, would become a reflection of the battle between the storm god and the dragon to release the water, as during such battles it often rained and afterwards sometimes hurricanes and monsoons would arrive. It would make almost perfect logical sense in a mythological way of thinking. In effect, the downfall of the good dragon was the response to people wanting gods in their own image and who had the need for water and saw the non-human dragon as withholding this and their strong and powerful successful god now defeated the dragon and so allowed rains to come. And this change could have also been further accelerated through reflex of the myth, something we sometimes see as cultures try and create their own identity by differing from neighbouring cultures in an almost opposite way, in effect a literal reflection of the original myth. And these are quite common, and we'll talk about another one of these later on when we discuss the Nordic god Thor. And so this reflex changes the myth from the good dragon giving water to the storm god fighting the dragon, and this fight, this combat, we do see spreading amongst similar cultures, especially the Indo-Europeans, but also variations of it are in the Near East. And I'll show this in my video on the origins of the dragon myth, which is well worth watch after this if you haven't seen it. And here we can see evidence of these fights, this conflict in the Rig Veda with Indra fighting the dragon Vitra, within the Enuma Elish with Marduk fighting Tiamat. But there again are hints of it in the Bible. In Job 41, we see God basically stroking his own ego by showing how easily he defeated the dragon. Although some people suggest that this statement is about an animal like a hippopotamus, but the words read as follows. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fishhook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life. Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash for a young woman in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? Here we clearly see the remnants of the storm god and dragon fight motif within the Bible. And perhaps 
The other, and as famous a story, is the Nordic god Thor, associated by many with thunder and lightning, fighting the Jumlungander, sometimes called the Midgarthed Serpent. And so, here we see there are many myths where the storm gods fight dragons, where the storm gods are good and the dragons are bad. And this is something we don't see in the original versions of the myth that were from China, Australia or South Africa. Or if we do, the dragon is seen as a representation of the storm god. Now, one interesting evolution in the myth's development is seen within the Near East where we see the storm god also fights the sea. Now the sea is often being seen as chaotic and this water was considered very much uh, as part of the overarching cosmos. This myth has the sea wanting to rule over the gods and then there is some motif acted out about agricultural gods or fertility gods being desired by the sea before the storm god eventually defeats the sea and becomes ruler of all the gods and then creates the world. And many of these myths end then with a motif of the other gods building a palace on top of a mountain in celebration for the storm god. And for those of you who are familiar with the Enuma Elish, this aligns very well to that myth, but so does the Baal cycle, the biblical text, but also the song of Ulikumi, the song of Hedamu, and the Astart Papyrus, to name a few. And so the myth of the good dragon controlling water for fertility of the land has changed to a bad dragon controlling water. And here a storm god defeats the dragon and releases the water to create fertile lands, which then has changed to a Near East version of the myth where the dragon disappears and the storm god just fights water in the form of the sea. Although it is possible that this could even be a motif from before the dragon myth, with the storm god controlling water before it was given a dragon shape rather than evolving from it. But it is really difficult to prove this either way, but to me it feels as though it developed after the dragon myth was known and then the dragon removed. Again, creating a cultural difference with neighbouring regions. We also see the myth go through evolution in the Indo-European region, and I mentioned this region as it is better attested to here than elsewhere in the world, as well as I have far more knowledge of these myths here making it easier to talk about. And in this region, we see all different flavours of myth from Perseus and Zeus fighting different sea dragons. We have Trito, the Indo-European warrior, who, having sacrificed to the storm god for strength, then defeats Ingrid to retrieve cattle. And we have seen in other videos how this evolves into the classical St George and the Dragon story, where St George saves a village or rescues a princess. Perhaps the clearest example of an evolution of the dragon myth, and so the storm god, is in Old Norse mythology, where we have two stories of Thor, god of thunder and lightning, if you believe the Marvel movies, uh, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But here we have Thor in one tale where he kills the dragon at Ragnarok, which is the end of the world event, thus allowing the world to be reset. Although in this event Thor dies, which is incredibly unusual for a storm god, and this has to be attributed to the end of the world event as opposed to the fact that the serpent is stronger than Thor. But we also see Thor fishing for the dragon in a poem called the Himiskiva, and this is a reflex of the Indo-European Celtic myth, 
as here Thor kills his enemy's favourite cattle for bait to use to catch the serpent and then only for his enemy to cut the fishing line when Thor hooks it. And if we look at these myths, you will see how they have evolved, but also still linked by a common theme. Here we can see the motif changing from the good dragon, but the motifs evolve due to cultural and environmental considerations. The Near East is far more water focused. The Indo-European myths are more cattle focused, but there are elements of the agricultural farming needs still in there, persisting, showing traces of previous beliefs and cultures. And so now we know how good dragons became bad and how God was actually a storm god. And when victory comes after defeating dragon, these storm gods are then elevated to ruler of gods. And this is evidence in the Enumerilish where we read the line, O Marduk, thou art indeed our avenger. We have granted thee kingship over the universe entire, which infers that the gods have made Marduk their king. And in the Vedic culture, where we often see Indra as a storm god or a warrior god, we do see in the Rig Veda the line, all power has been successively conceded verily to you, Indra, who are mighty, again inferring that he holds power over all the Vedic gods. In effect, he is their king. But perhaps we should talk about the most famous storm god who isn't a storm god. And we find him on the other side of Europe. And his name is Thor, which, as I said, name means thunder, and who holds a hammer whose name is Mjolnir, which means lightning. But Thor is a god who shows no control or use of thunder or lightning with any of the poems within the poetic Edda, the primary source for Nordic mythology. In effect, he evolved his role as a storm god into the sky deity, which probably contributed to his loss of association with thunder and lightning directly and now just uses a hammer as a weapon and this would align with how other storm gods were made head of their pantheons however things are a bit more complicated than that because we also see thor in a pantheon of gods that is led by odin just a thousand years ago even though we know thor was more popular in Scandinavia. And we know this by the amount of iconography and archaeological finds we have associated with him alongside the written evidence. There is no doubt, however, that he was considered the most important god in parts of Scandinavia during the first millennium CE, but we also see Odin influence increases as time moves on. And so by the end of the first millennium, we see Odin either stand alongside Thor or even above Thor in the Pantheon's reconstruction. But as I say, this does all depend on the time and region of Scandinavia we're looking at, as Pantheons weren't static. What we are seeing though is an old storm god who himself has been adjusted due to further change in the Pantheon. But there was one other reason why Thor was so popular and that is to do with warriors. In some of the Indo-European myths, the storm god doesn't battle the serpent, but we see the myth evolve to a heroic warrior battling a serpent, but this warrior must sacrifice to the storm god to get their strength. And this gave rise to the Indo-European motif of Trito, the warrior whose fame would never fade, and so gave him a form of immortality. 
And aligning to this, we see cultures that were warrior focused, such as the Nordic and Germanic peoples, and they would have held their storm god in high regard, as this is from whom they would get their strength. And so, to sum this up, here we have Thor, the world's most famous thunder god, thanks to Marvel, not being a thunder god by the time we hear stories about him. However, it is almost beyond doubt to deny the fact that he would have been a storm god in an earlier incarnation. And this can be seen if you look at his attributes and compare him with the map of storm gods across the Indo-European region. Here you see the Proto-Indo-European name of the storm god Perquinos, or sometimes pronounced Perquinos, we're not entirely sure, migrating two names we can attest to locally, and Perquinos probably means to strike an oak tree, inferring that it is lightning striking the tree. And we can see the storm god migrate into Greece, where he was eventually absorbed into Zeus, possibly hinting that Perkinos, or as the people in this region of Greece would have called him Kyrunos, being there before Zeus established himself. And this is because the region we now call Greece went through a number of generations of cultures, from hunter-gatherers and Neolithic farmers, and at least two waves of Indo-European migrations. And all this evolved the pantheon and culture, and, and the result was Zeus taking on the storm god properties and having a thunderbolt with the name of the storm god, Kyrunos. And then we see the Indo-European storm god name evolve further due to culture and environmental impact, with some of the biggest change when it headed westwards past Central Europe. And here we get the Celtic-influenced regions of Europe, where the storm god becomes Taranis. Although there is a lot of change that the Celtic cultures went through, and it is believed that at an early time, the Celts probably used the name Perkinior, which means wooded mountain. Now, whilst we can't be 100% sure this is exactly right, it would really tie closely with the Gothic form of the word Ferguni and the Old English Fergen, which both mean mountain. And if we then consider that these Germanic languages changed, uh, they changed the P to an F and the K to a G as it developed, which, whilst unusual, is not unheard of in pronunciation evolution, then you have the etymology between the Germanic forms and the Old English form of Fjordjin. And this is important as it seems to be the name the Germanic and Nordic gods should have acquired. But instead, we see Thunor and Thor. But but the name Fjörgin did persist, albeit infrequently, in stories and poems, where Fjörgin was the father of Frigg, who married Odin, and there was also a goddess called Fjörgin, who was also known as Jord, who was considered as an Earth Mother type goddess, and she was the mother of Thor and mistress to Odin. But what has happened here is that as myths age and pantheons change, Fjörgin was given the name Thunor, and this travelled into Scandinavia, where the name became Thor, and this is why mythology is complicated, leaving us with Thor potentially being Thor's mother and Thor's grandfather. And this is probably due partly to the older name persisting in poems and stories, and partly due to Odin being introduced, becoming leader of the Pantheon, and so reducing the role of the Sky Deity, for we usually see the Sky Father often marrying the Earth Mother 
to produce the storm god. But the similarities in all these gods doesn't just stop at the names. We also see similarities in these gods with their weapons, usually a hammer or club, usually named after lightning, as well as the use of a flying chariot, which helps us identify their role. However, if we then flip to the other side of the Indo-European region and in India, the thunder god there was called Indra, and was said to be the son of Deus, the sky deity, and Prithvi, the earth goddess. However, there is no etymological connection between the names Indra and Perkinos, and so the name must have developed independently, and therefore this might throw doubt on whether there was a proto-Indo-European storm god which all storm gods evolved from, because the names just do not link up to a central point. But as we see with Thor, names do change. And so here we should also take note that the first recorded mention of Indra was around 1500 BCE. And so it's not a new creation. He is a very ancient god. But here we also see that these storm gods across Europe, Persia and into India all have been imagined as an angry person with a fiery face and a beard. They usually hurl a weapon, a mace or an axe or occasionally a hammer, and some did have a lightning bolt. And these weapons all returned to the hand, as well as some of them had the flying chariot, and some of those were pulled by goats. All this suggests they did have a common root, and we also see Indra and Perkinos sometimes perceived as a ball in their myths, again adding to the evidence that this is more than a coincidental consideration. But perhaps the most significant common factor is that these storm gods all share an enemy, a dragon, in control of water. In the Vedic culture this was Vitra, in the Old Norse it was the Ulmungandr, in Greece it was Zeus who fought Typhus, and in the Near East Marduk fought Tiamat. These dragon myths point to the motif that there's a monstrous reptile lying in water or stopping access to water, a plot similar to a dragon protecting a magical spring which is another common story. However, when it comes to the dragon, there's often ambiguity in the story on whether the monster is actually killed, leaving the reader or listener to wonder if it's still safe to venture into the sea. And so remember that when you go on the beach for your next holiday. So I hope you enjoy that journey through storm gods and dragons and warriors. And don't forget to check out my dragon videos if you want to understand where the dragon myth came from, how it originated and how it evolved from those origins. And I would like to thank all of you for watching and a special thanks to my patrons who help make this possible. And until the next video, please stay safe and well. And this was Crack and Fulton.